Our reading for the day comes from Song of Solomon 8, 6 through 7. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, passion fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, a raging flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If one offered for love all the wealth of one's house, it would be utterly scorned. Good morning, Zal. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. And uh, we are rounding out our series, It's Complicated, which is a look at love from a queer, feminist, anti-racist lens in the Bible. And one of the things that I've heard more than anything else as we've been in this series is, I didn't know it was in there. I didn't know that was in there, or I wasn't uh, aware that that's what that story meant or contained. And it's been really wonderful, really freeing to me to see how many of us encounter something entirely new or something really different when we take a different lens and a different reading to the Bible. This is what happens when we reclaim this sacred text from a different perspective and with different lenses. It really changes the way we understand scripture as a guide, especially if we're trying to have healthy and happy and holy relationships with ourselves first and foremost, but also uh, romantic relationships with others. How many of us have been told to have a godly relationship or a godly understanding of our sexuality, but that's been abusive? And how many of us have actually longed to have our relationship with ourself, our bodies, our loves, to be held as holy. How many of us have longed actually to be able to look to the Bible to tell us how to love well and have felt utterly alone or rejected or wrong? This past week, I had my own kind of uh, revelation with a piece of scripture. It happened in Echo. Um, Echo is our weekly gathering of small groups, and we have this practice of coming together as a, a handful of small groups, first uh, for what's called Lectio Divina, which is a meditation on scripture. Every week it's a different piece of scripture, and that means that every week there are different joys and discoveries in the text. And the point of Lectio Divina is not to discern the one true meaning of any given text, the point is to listen, to use the Bible as a tool to hear from God. That actually is what the Bible is at its best. It is a way for God to speak to us. And God's voice is not static. God's voice is alive and living and in relationship with us, which means that every time we meditate collectively on a text together in Lectio Divina, we each hear something different. Then, in hearing from one another, we hear something different again, and on and on. That's why it's called echo. We echo the very words of God and discern multiple layers of truth and relationship. And so, this past week at Echo, we were reflecting on Jesus' temptation in the desert. We're moving through Matthew. We sort of started at the beginning, and we're just going to work our way through for a while, dwelling in the stories of Jesus. 
And so we were with Jesus in the desert, and Jesus was suffering. It says that when Jesus was suffering, he was hungry. He had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And so with Jesus being so hungry, the devil came to tempt him. The devil says, turn these stones into bread if you're so hungry. And Jesus uses scripture to defend himself. He says, he recalls, it's though he gathers it up from his inmost being, this promise from scripture. We don't live on bread alone, but on every word of God. And that place is a buffer between Jesus and that temptation, the evil that is trying to interfere with his seeking of God. But the devil comes back. And now the devil uses scripture itself against Jesus. He says, uh, this is in chapter 4, verse 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is a really fascinating exchange, and I heard it in a new and different way last week. You see, the devil isn't misquoting scripture. That's really in there. It's in Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. So what does that mean if the devil is quoting the real Bible, the real scriptures that Jesus may have quoted before himself? It means that evil is capable of using scripture for harm. In a similar way, elsewhere in the Gospels, we see that the demons recognize Jesus as divine. In the book of Luke, in chapter 4, Jesus is casting demons out of suffering people. Verse 41 says, Demons also came out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. Now why is that? Why is that that evil ones, demons in this case as they are described, would call Jesus the Son of God? And why would Jesus want to silence that? There are many people in this world, in the American church, who would tell us that salvation comes from believing that Jesus is the Son of God, and that the good and righteous life comes from reading and obeying the scriptures. But the Bible itself demonstrates that demons also believe Jesus is God, and that the devil uses scripture sometimes to manipulate and harm us. So do we throw out this whole book? Do we say the Bible is tainted, the Bible has been used for harm, the Bible is hurting us, so we will cast it away? What about how Jesus uses scripture saying man does not live on bread alone, but on every utterance of God to defend himself from evil? Or even later, he goes back again to scripture to refute the scripture that the devil is quoting. Perhaps we say, okay, we're just going to throw away the scriptures that have been used to hurt us. 
If the devil uses that passage about angels to manipulate and harm Jesus, let's throw it out. That one's not in our Bible anymore. And perhaps that would similarly lead us to say the ways that the Bible has been used to harm us or to harm women or queer people or people of color, especially as we're talking right now in the context of romantic love and of uh, the sense of our own value in relationship, that all of that harm proves that we should just throw those scriptures out, just leave them out of our quest for love and identity, just cut away at the Bible until what's left is the stuff that won't hurt us, except two things. First, Jesus comes back with a retort when the devil quotes scripture at him. And he says, elsewhere, the Bible says something else. It says, do not put your Lord, uh, the Lord your God to the test. He references other scriptures to contextualize, to show that there are other important things in the Bible to expose that the way that the devil is using this text is wrong. This is grounding for Jesus to be able to have another reference point, and he uses it to rebuke the devil, to rebuke that evil. Two, the scripture that the devil quotes isn't actually wrong. In fact, even though it's been misused here, we actually see it be fulfilled just a few verses later. Because remember this quote that the devil is making, the angels will guard you, will tend to you, will care for you. So you can do risky and wild things um, because the angels will protect you. And so the devil manipulates that to say, throw yourself off this cliff and test God. Trust that the angels will lift you up, prove your power, prove your identity. And I'll give you more power. That's the promise behind that twist. But after Jesus rebukes the devil and says, no, that's not how we're supposed to do that. We're not supposed to test God with that. Then a few verses later, it says this. Then the devil left him and suddenly angels came and waited on him. So this scripture is real. It is communicating an important truth. And that truth is for the benefit of Jesus and for the blessing of Jesus' seeking of God. The devil is trying to use that as a wedge between Jesus and God to make Jesus put God to the test, to make Jesus prove himself and then get power, which the devil is consolidating and offering to Jesus. And Jesus says, no, that doesn't feel right at all. That's, that's not what those angels are there for. Those angels are there so that I can face you. Those angels are going to protect me in the desert as I'm starving. But they are not here for me to amass power and wealth the way that you want me to. So how do we do this? This seems like a really complicated task that Jesus is engaging in. How do we be like Jesus in our ability to use Scripture and our ability to ward off misuses of Scripture? Honestly, it's a lifelong process. Jesus is in deep relationship with God. And that is the, the grounding thing that helps Jesus navigate this the most. Now, Jesus being God and fully human is in relationship with God in a way that seems beyond us. And yet that is what we are called to do as well, to know the heart of God 
so that we can have a sense of when the scriptures are being used for good or for harm. The devil and these demons described, they don't trust God. They want to undermine love and freedom. They're trying to hurt people, as in the case with the, uh, the passage in Luke. They're trying to drive a wedge uh, between Jesus and God in the, in the desert. In that case, the tempter is power-seeking and dominating. This is so different from who God is and who Jesus knows God to be that Jesus can see those red flags popping up and says, no, that, mm, that's not how that scripture is supposed to be used. Jesus knows the heart of God, which is love. And Jesus trusts his instincts when God language or scripture is being used to harm instead of offer love to people. So through relationship with God, Jesus knows the true purpose of scripture, which is healing, wholeness, and joy. Jesus also identifies with the marginalized. God came to this earth as a tiny brown baby in occupied territory in Palestine, a person of Jewish faith under Roman occupation. God chooses to be with the margins and the folks who are most oppressed to throw off those chains of oppression, which means that Jesus sees from a mile away that power-hungry energy of the tempter in the desert and says, this has nothing to do with God. So how do we develop that kind of relationship with God and with scripture so that we can use this not only for the benefit of our lives, but also in a way that fends off the attacks that would cloak themselves as holiness? One of the ways is meditate. The scriptures themselves say, I meditate on your word day and night. And to me, Lectio Divina is a huge part of that process. If you haven't checked out Echo yet, Wednesday nights at 6.30, I highly encourage you to do that sometime. Even if you don't want to do it regularly, coming in and meditating with us on the scriptures can be really transformational. Find a way to allow the scriptures to speak to you here and now, to draw you into relationship with God. Not as a text that's worth studying, although it is also that, and it's very cool in that way, but also as a living document kind of thread between you and God with tin cans on either side where God can speak to you truths that only you can hear and only God can speak. And next week, we will actually have a guest here with us. Uh, the Reverend Dr. J. Williams will speak more into this, how Jesus himself liberates scripture and teaches us to have a different kind of relationship with the Bible. In the meantime, though, we don't give up. As we are trying to seek a stronger, more holy relationship with the scriptures, we trust that God has holy truths to speak into our lives, even the parts of our lives that have been most harmed by the evil uses, evil misuse of scripture. In terms of godly love, that's what we've been doing over these last several weeks We need to rebuke the ways that those texts have been used to harm or that other texts have been used to harm. We need to contextualize within the love of our real and living relational God. We need to find different anchoring points to reject the ways that the text has been used to abuse us, keep us in harm's way, or consolidate the power of the few at the expense of the many.
So for today, I just want to go through and talk about the ways that each of the love stories that we have examined over the past several weeks is an exercise in reclaiming scripture, in rebuking harm, and also reclaiming our inheritance, which is this holy document that speaks truth about our love. So we have Tamar and Judah and Onan, Rebecca and Isaac, Ruth and Naomi, the Ethiopian eunuch, and David and Jonathan. Let's start with Tamar. Tamar, in her story, was denied justice by her legal husbands, one after the other, as they um, tried to deny her her own inheritance and died, and her father-in-law. They went to great lengths to keep from her the things that would have offered her sustenance, the things that would have made her equal to them or close as possible in their culture. And so she went to great lengths to restore justice. She was called righteous by the text. She did what she had to do. She was, uh, she was cunning. <laughs> you could even say that she was, um, she was tricky. But she did what she had to do to restore her place in the family, to survive. And she was called righteous by the text for that. As a woman in a patriarchal and misogynist culture, her story is one of fighting for her place. To say that love or marriage or relationship can only exist well where there is mutuality, where there is sustainability, where no one is subject to the whims and injustices of others. But she got erased from her own story in the telling of this text through the history of the church. And in fact, Onan got the headline. Onan, who had tried to deny her her inheritance by, um, by failing to get her pregnant, he uh, pulled out and spilled his seed on the ground, the scripture says, the point of which was to deny her an heir. But he got the headline there, and spilling your seed on the ground became a whole morality tale about how folks should control their sexuality and their sexual urges and impulses. This scripture was twisted to erase a story of justice for women and justice for those vulnerable folks in relationship with others who have more power. This scripture was twisted to control bodies and to shame sexuality. This scripture erased the harm of Onan and Judah and instead became some sort of weird story about how our sexuality disappoints God. We have to rebuke that. In relationship with God who loves us, who gave us our sexuality, in relationship with God who calls for justice for all, especially the widow, which Tamar was, in relationship with God, we can see the true meaning and call of this text. Women deserve justice. Vulnerable people in relationship deserve equity. 
Relationships should be founded on mutuality and trust, and a denial of that requires intervention. The truth is that if you are in an unequal relationship and you are being abused or harmed or oppressed, it is righteous for you to fight for what you need. Even when that calls you into a fight with powerful, abusive oppressors. This is the truth of Tamar and the story of Tamar's marriage. This has a lesson for all of us, for all of us, of every gender and sexuality, of every orientation, of every type of relationship, single, partnered, married, beyond, that we often will erase with our culture. But when we uncover that, we see this story once again. It is righteous for the vulnerable to seek justice, even or perhaps especially in intimate relationships like marriage. In Rebecca and Isaac, we have another story, one that has more affection and even the word love in it, which is a nice shift. Isaac was a foreigner in a new land. He chose to marry someone from his hometown rather than marry someone from a different ethnic group who didn't share his history and identity. It's a beautiful story of finding your people, of perhaps going into places you have left to connect with your history, to bring your history into a new land, to partner with someone who understands you uniquely, it reminds me of the advice that Val gave us when she joined us a few weeks ago and we were talking about healing justice. She said, find your people. And this is what Isaac and Rebecca did. They found one another and they went into new places and God brought them into new things and they were grounded and anchored by the love they shared and the identity they shared. The week that we talked about Rebecca and Isaac, we celebrated with Taylor, who described her experience of black love and what it means to love someone who shares her black identity in a world dominated by people who don't. The beauty of that shared black experience is powerful. That is a truth contained within the story of Rebecca and Isaac, the joy of finding your people who have a shared identity, of not uh, necessarily engaging with the dominant culture around you for love, but actually reaching into spaces of identity and shared experience. But this story became twisted very early on in its history. It became a mandate in ancient Israel for marriages within your own ethnic group, and it became illegal to marry outsiders. Let us rebuke this misuse of the scripture and claim the beauty of finding your people without limiting where you will find your people. Which brings us to the story of Ruth and Naomi, a story of loyalty and love, trust between women in a romantic inter-ethnic relationship. When she suggested, find your people, Val noted that sometimes it's not people who share your identity, 
But maybe it's people who share your values from a different standpoint or a different identity. Ruth and Naomi is this sweet love story of two women from different cultures falling in love and finding ways to build family against the odds, against the pressures of culture. That story, that sweet, sweet love story, got erased and straightened into a story about Boaz. Great! But Ruth and Naomi is not a story about a wonderful man and a straight marriage. Ruth and Naomi is the story of queer love, of beautiful, odds-defying love. Let's reclaim that and take the lesson that queer love is holy, that commitment is beautiful and can take us to new places, that family takes shape in many and various ways, and God blesses the holy love of those willing to defy convention and love one another completely as Ruth and Naomi love each other. Speaking of stories that got erased by heteronormative readings, David and Jonathan, forbidden love between you, two young men. It's a story of passion and affection and longing. And it's a story of a culture that rejects their love, forces it into hiding, and eventually tears them apart. It is a tragedy in the scriptures. And yet it has so many powerful truths to teach us. This story of David and Jonathan's romantic love got turned into an essay on friendship. And that seems innocuous, right? Like, what's the harm in seeing them as friends? That's still a nice story. Beautiful, powerful love between friends should be celebrated. And not all passionate, affectionate relationship is sexual or romantic in nature. So what's the harm in turning David and Jonathan into a story of affection? Well, it seems harmless until you take into account what and who it erases. As I mentioned last week, how would the story of Romeo and Juliet changed if all of the readers simply glossed over their romantic and sexual love for one another and said, oh, we're good friends. Yes, friendship is passionate and powerful, and so is love. And this is where we get to our scripture reading today. From the Song of Songs, which we did a whole sermon on um, a month or so, a couple months back, this poetry between lovers Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, passion as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, a raging flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If one offered for love all the wealth of one's house, it would be utterly scorned. This is the kind of love that is celebrated by scripture. And yet how many of us actually think of that kind of love when we're thinking of a godly relationship or a godly marriage? Our culture has interpreted the Bible to say that a good and godly love uh, or a good and godly marriage or a good and godly relationship is sort of sterile. It is pure. It is upright but it isn't passionate and fiery 
and loving and affectionate and overflowing and flowery in its language and excessive in its drama. But that kind of love is in the scriptures, and some of it is really gay, especially these passages between David and Jonathan. We see in this story a queer and holy love by passion, by bold proclamations of love in public and in private, by affection, by kissing and weeping and meeting in secret fields. This story, this tragedy, acknowledges the broken world that works against love sometimes. It tells the story of those whose love is denied. It celebrates the passion of David and Jonathan and all those whose passionate love is denied by the people around them. The story weeps with David. God weeps with David and Jonathan and all those who are driven from their loved ones because of hatred or confusion or sinful fathers, parents, or others. This tragedy describes a holy love. We rebuke the glossing over of that. We celebrate friendship. We celebrate passionate, affectionate friendship. But we refuse to pit that against the holy, queer, passionate, dramatic love story of Jonathan and David. And finally, in this series, the most radical character that we just love to forget is even in the Bible, the Ethiopian eunuch. This queer, trans, black, beloved child of God is denied entry into the temple at Jerusalem. But through relationship with God and with Peter, and remarkably, through reading the scriptures, the eunuch sees their own preciousness, their own belovedness, their own place in the narrative, place among God's people, their inheritance of God's love, God's creation, and the word of God contained in scripture. If you missed this sermon, we had tech issues that week, but if you missed this sermon from Cameron, please go back and dwell with it. We see the eunuch doing what we are all called to do, to question the limits that culture has put on access to God and scripture, to use the Bible itself to see ourselves, to see a mirror and see ourselves reflected in our most holy form, to find with confidence that when we see ourselves in the Bible, we do see our potential to love fully, to seek justice for ourselves, to, to be passionately in love, to offer affection for one another, to be fully queer, to be fully trans, to be fully black, to be fully ourselves in whatever way God has invited us to be. And when we see that in the scripture, we, with the eunuch, claim our inheritance we join in baptism and other rituals to die to the ways of the world which would limit the word of God and to emerge from the water newly in love and open to the possibilities of the beauty of our own love for self and for others. In conclusion, 
We can never let others define our stories for us. How often are other folks trying to narrow the scope of our story? To narrow the scope of God's story? To limit the power of love, the power of scripture, the power of God to speak new truths or newly discerned truths into our lives? It is our call to re-examine and find what is true, to re-examine the scriptures, to find the queer love, to find the feminist beauty, to find the, the pro-black um, treatises, to find the examples of culture-defying, boundary-breaking, kingdom-building love that knit the story of God together. That is our task. And same with ourselves, because each of us has a story. And our stories have so often been told to us or for us, defined without our consent. We have been erased from our own stories, the headline given to someone more powerful or more centered or more dominant in culture. We must re-examine our own stories to find what is true and to find what truth God is telling to the world through us, through our love, through our place in the kingdom. Over the last several weeks, I hope that you have seen yourself, your love, and the promises of love for you written into the Bible. If anything comes to mind, I urge you to share it in comments now. What are the things that have been transformed for you? What word of God has been spoken to you in these stories? And I hope folks know that whoever you are listening, Scripture is for you. Perhaps you've been told that Scripture is for others, and hard to imagine that Scripture could be for you. And that's a new possibility. Perhaps you were told often that Scripture was for you, and you saw yourself in it until you saw who was missing. And now you think, oh, Scripture isn't for me. It's for someone more oppressed, more marginalized. It is for them too, but it's also for you. So where have you seen an invitation into wholeness written for you by the God who can write the scriptures for all of us and then rewrite them in our hearts every time we listen? What has transformed you in these stories of love? I also urge you to think of one person who needs to hear either this story told today or one of the other ones over the last several weeks? Who needs to hear the word of God spoken to them intimately and personally through these radical stories of love? Take a risk to love them by sharing it. This book, it was given to us as a gift. Mine has gotten a little beat up. It is shaped not only by God's love for us, but by our trust and love for God. That when we give God the benefit of the doubt and open our hearts to the true meaning of Scripture, we will have the power to rebuke the ways that this has been used for evil. To find the truth of the word, to be transformed by it, and to be immersed 
and in an emerging kingdom of love. Will you pray with me? God of love and power, God of gentleness and change, God of holy wisdom, protect us, invite us, teach us, and God, most of all, love us. You are good. May your goodness endure forever and endure in us. Amen.